Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Maybe back in the day, you know, injecting your, your gardener's child with some crude substance. That was normal. Doc, that's what doctors do, you know? <laughs> I'd like to speak to the medical board, please. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show. Is it serious? A conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor speak. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. And I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD. My friends call me JL. And I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. I'm also a health technology and startup investing expert, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. Before we get started today, we just want to give a shout out to Offscript Health's fearless leader, Matthew Zachary, and his podcast series with Alura Nanos, Backs On. Matt and Allura are two very charismatic hosts whose conversations are real and authentic and fun and wacky, and they really attack the vaccination conversation like no one else. So true. You'll laugh as they manage to weave stories about their marching band days, their kids, and monkeypox into their discussions as they track the evolving COVID situation. It's actually a great pairing for our episode today as we're going to get into a very thorough conversation about mRNA. That's right. So we'll be sure to put the link for Vaxon in our show notes, because we know that you'll have a great time listening to Matt and Allura. Today's leading question is, can you help me understand this mRNA stuff? You know, we've been having these conversations about mRNA with our patients and our loved ones for a while now, Mark, and we wanted to break it down for our listeners today. Yeah, JL, you know, sometimes medical terms just leak into the mainstream without a whole lot of explanation, and people start to adapt the vocabulary and begin using it regularly without really understanding what it means. And this is fascinating, innovative, life-saving science. So we thought today we'd just go back to the basics, sort of immune system 101, and sort of see where it's taken us to today. So, you know, again, I, I think the big question here is, you know, why has this been so hard, man? You know, it just feels to me like we've been fighting this battle for two years. Uh, it, it just like this pandemic just, you know, it just keeps grinding on. And I don't know, why has this mRNA stuff been so hard for people to understand? You know, I, I, I can feel the fatigue in your voice. <laughs> and I, I feel it. I, I feel it in my bones. And I think actually, I think there's this almost irreconcilable problem. This is this is how I break it down is people know or many people have inferred that mRNA has something to do with DNA. And there again, I think there's enough general awareness and science literacy that people know DNA is something that makes us up. It's like this permanent code that makes me, me and you, you. On the other hand, one of the critiques of the vaccines is they don't offer long-lasting enough protection. So I think we've got this battle between fearing that this is going to be a permanent change to your body over which you have no control versus the other concern that it's not going to protect you for long enough. And I think that's honestly why this has been one of the reasons it's been so challenging. 
Yeah. And, and look, and I, I think a very important issue is, you know, things that people don't understand, right? Or they feel like they don't understand fully, things that they can't touch, things that they can't see. I don't know. I think that as human beings, we just get skeptical. We get, you know, it's it's easy to inject conspiracy theories. It's easy to inject things that, you know, don't make sense or are magical. And I think that a big problem is that it's just been, you know, not everybody has an MD degree. Not everybody is a virologist or a biologist. So it's hard for people to understand these concepts. And, and this is the problem, honestly, is it's so easy for us to be accused right off the bat of being condescending and arrogant. But on the other hand, I'm sorry to say it, but you know, we spent years learning this stuff. And, and I hope you know that as doctors, before we ever are allowed to lay hands on patients, we just spend a lot of time learning basic science, which is sometimes not that basic. And, you know, it, it's just been the reflexive retort that, oh, you're, you're so high-minded and you're looking down on us and you're accusing us of being scientifically illiterate. Well, I just want there to be a basic understanding that this, this takes some thought. And that's, again, the purpose of today's episode. And again, not only does it take 10 years to understand, even after you've been studying it for 10 years, you still have to look it up, right? I, you know, I think I spent a, a bit of time refreshing my, my knowledge about mRNA. And even then, you know, there are lots of concepts that are very subtle, very challenging to understand and really do require specialist expertise. So again, we're going to try to do the best that we can today to, to help explain what, what we know. That's right. As Americans, you know, we are, people forget, like America is number one in the world for individualism. You know, we tend to be a very individualistic culture. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, you know, there's this feeling of, you know, I only want to do what's right for myself, right? I only want to do what's right for me. And I think that sometimes people don't understand that your actions sometimes impact other people too. So I think that's another big thing that we've been bumping up against is our American exceptionalism or our American individualism that I think sometimes is really great. You know, it leads us to do great things and, you know, put a man on the moon, invent the Apple computer, do all kinds of other interesting things. But sometimes when you need to have everybody doing the right thing so that you can protect even the weakest people, specifically the weakest people who are most susceptible to the virus, I think sometimes it's challenging to get people to stop thinking about themselves as individuals. Yeah. And then the other part of it, I think, JL, is that we actually have a responsibility. You know, in medicine, we talk about having a fiduciary responsibility. That means you kind of take the weight of what happens to your patients and their outcomes, and you put that on your shoulders. That's our professional duty. But I think the other part of it, and this goes back to respecting individuality, is I think before someone agrees to do something voluntarily to their body, they need to understand the why. And in fairness, I think we could have all done a better job with messaging. And again, that's the whole point of this form of communication is not trying to talk down to people. It's actually trying to respect them as uh, people with agency. But it's also very, um, very easy to characterize us as having flip-flopped during the pandemic, even though the virus today looks so different than it did two years ago. And you know, one very commonly cited example is around masking. Mm -hmm. In the very, very early days, I'm talking like March 2020. I remember distinctly. You know, it looked like, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I remember. Personal protective equipment, PPE, looked like it was going to get hoarded like toilet paper. But I think even now I hear that argument brought up as you know, look how the government misled us early on. And now later on, they say, oh, you need to mask. And that seems like a contradiction in terms. I, again, I think it's very difficult in such a dynamic situation um, to hold someone to the, exactly the same position they held 
years ago or even months ago, and, and there's precedent for this too, as an oncologist, as a cancer doctor, if I treated patients the same way I yep. was taught to treat patients during my training, it would be malpractice because the field has evolved. And we accept that in, in other forms of medicine as progress, but we seem to hold on and anchor to things in the pandemic in a way that I actually haven't seen before. And again, I think that flip-flopping concept is very important here because, again, I think what happens is, you know, you have a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic that's happening. There's so much that we're learning at any given time. It's causing us to change our recommendations, change the advice, change the guidelines. And if you're not a scientifically trained person, it, it may not be clear, like, hey, there's new information that's being learned here, and we're adapting to that. What people hear instead is that, there's this all-knowing truth and these guys keep changing the all-knowing truth. And I think that that's been a real challenge, you know? Um, but I will say that I think some of the best stuff that I've seen actually uh, in recent times about like, you know, from scientists has not been like somebody going on CBS News, but like a scientist re uh, recording a rap on TikTok, which I think has literally yes. Yes. Hit m like, uh, you know, millions more people than the guy who goes on CNN, you know, and has a more traditional presentation. And I think it's been a very important lesson for how we can communicate information uh, in the future. The flip side, of course, of, uh, is, you know, the, the constant misinformation that you're getting from Facebook, right? And the constant yeah. stuff that's in intruding into people's lives. And for a lot of people, especially people who are socially isolated, Facebook can often be the only connection that they have. And if that connection is flooded with misinformation, it can be really hard. So, you know, I think it's been a big challenge. And again, you know, you, you, you get that feeling from me like two years, man, you know, I, I'm done with COVID, but <laughs> as we like to say, COVID is not done with me yet. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and you're so right. It's really about being a consumer in the information economy. And you have to ask, uh, where are the facts or what appears to be facts? Where are they coming from? And can you trust the source? And you know, just like the virus itself, these things can replicate. It's like a game of telephone. And the, the, the mutations that occur in information can really distort uh, the truth. But I love your uh, allusion to doctors and scientists and TikToks. I kind of have to smile and imagine like some future sort of faculty uh, meeting. You know, someone gets up and rather than like presenting their <laughs> your CV... <laughs> they deliver their latest findings in, in a viral dance format. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah. Hey, listen, if it works, it works. And again, I think that's a, a key lesson from this pandemic. Uh, but I think what we wanted to do today is really roll up our sleeves, figure out how we can take 10 years of education and training and sort of, uh, you know, uh, condense it down into something that people can understand. And, you know, we're doing this all on audio. So we're going to really have to paint a picture because we don't have any visuals that we can provide. So as we were working on this, I think we sat down and said, what are some questions that we can ask? That's that's a very big thing that we do in our medical training is you sort of ask questions as a way to gain knowledge, sort of the, um, the Socratic method. Let's ask questions. And then those questions are a way to bring about knowledge. So why don't we jump into our first thing? Um, so we talk a lot about, as we've been talking about viruses, we use the word cell all the time as if people understand, like, what's a cell? I, I, I think I understand what a cell is, but most people don't. So let's get into that first. So um, a cell if you can imagine, is the building block of any living thing, right? So the human body is made up of lots and lots of cells. If you look at me, you look at Mark, you see like a three-dimensional structure that all seems like it's one thing. But we're actually trillions and trillions of sub-things. And in fact, the human body is made up of 30 trillion cells. Mark, if I had asked you that yesterday, would you, would you have gotten that number? 
Well, I would have struggled to give you that exact number. And, and I guess one of the things that's so frightening is in this massive assembly of literally trillions with the T cells, it just takes one of them going wrong to derail the entire system. Uh, the, the happy part of our physiology is that most of the time, things self-regulate and it's checks and balances between some cells versus other cells. But you know, what was different, of course, is when you introduce something foreign to the mix, but we'll get to that. All right. Sounds good. So if you're familiar with building a castle out of Legos, I have two kids, so we had Legos in the house. Imagine that every individual Lego piece is a cell, right? And each of those cells is specialized to do something in your body. So you have skin cells, you have white cells, red cells, you, you know, most people are familiar with that. And if you go back to the Lego analogy, imagine that the white brick with two studs is a red cell and the red brick with four studs is a white cell. So you get the idea, right? There are specialized cells. Now, imagine that the instruction book that defines every single brick in the building and the entire castle is what we call the human genome. I think most people have heard of the human genome project, right, Mark? Yeah. And you're really taking me back and I'm, I'm both dating myself and uh, declaring myself as a nerd. I was obsessed with the human genome project in high school. I could not believe that we were going to be given the, the sequence, which is 3 billion letters long, as long as we're dealing with mind bending numbers that we consider to be the normal arrangement of letters that makes up a human being. And, and I'll tell you what's also mind blowing is in my own medical history, basically over a decade later, not only do we know that sequence, that sequence was used to tell me where my sequence differs. So wow. we are living in an incredible era. It's hard, it's hard to think actually that, you know, 30 years ago, we didn't know the normal code and now we do. Wow. So imagine if there was a Lego genome project, right? The Lego genome project would define <laughs> your castle and the human yes. genome project defines us as people. Now that yep. super long instruction book is encoded in a substance called DNA. I think most people have heard of DNA and DNA is that famous double helix that you see. It's actually one of the most often used images in life sciences and medicine discovered, uh, of course, by James Watson and Francis Crick and another very important person who often doesn't get her props, but a very famous scientist by the name of Rosalind Franklin, whose work was critical to the discovery uh, that Watson and Crick would eventually make. Um, I think something else that most people know is that those that DNA is organized in some way. It's organized into what are called chromosomes. And we have 23 pairs of chromosomes that makes us human being, and it's tucked away in the nucleus of each cell. So one thing that m a lot of people may not understand is that your instruction book is contained in the nucleus of every cell in your body or almost every cell in your body. And, uh, you know, you're walking around with instructions to make another Jean-Luc or another Mark and you don't even realize it. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely staggering. If you think about the information density that's contained within us, I mean, it's volumes and volumes and volumes. And the other thing that's remarkable is what we are able to make out of so few letters. So you know, the English alphabet has 26 letters, but every human on this planet is their code is composed of four letters, A, C, G, and T, and it's all about the sequence. It's all about how those letters are read, and as we'll discuss, how the signal from the code, how we, how we read that uh, instruction manual, as you said, JL, how that ends up actually producing from instruction manual, how it ends up producing something material, which is us. Yep. And what I always like to point out to people, and my kids always get their minds blown when I say this, is that the instruction manual for a human is actually very similar to the instruction manual for a whale and the instruction yes. manual for a rabbit. It's like literally like less than 1% difference in those instruction manuals, which is sort of a mind-blowing kind of thing, you know? You're right. The interspecies 
differences are not nearly as big as we might like to flatter ourselves. And then to, again, to bring it back to just humans, so in my three billion letter sequence, my cancer syndrome comes from a deletion of two letters and the insertion of one letter. So just think about like how painstakingly you would have to copy your code every time not to make a mistake. And it's when mistakes happen that uh, it can give rise to things like cancer. Uh, but it's interesting also that what can insert itself, unfortunately, into these letters too, is what we're about to talk about, and that's viruses. All right, so why don't we roll into that? What's a virus? Again, another thing that people hear all the time, hey, I got this virus, I got that virus. What is a virus? So, you know, it's interesting, Joe, there's actually even an almost philosophical discussion about whether we should call viruses alive. I remember. Um, clearly, they're very, yeah, right? And and, and yeah, that debate rages right now. Clearly, this virus is very prevalent. How could it not be a living thing? You know, one thing uh, that I often will reference is we're very, we're all very used to talking about computer viruses. Um, we even talk about, as I already referenced earlier, things going viral, replicating in a fashion that just amplifies and amplifies. But you know, one way I think about viruses is it's a it's a it's a piece of genetic code that is programmed to propagate itself. And again, I think in that context, we're already used to thinking about that that metaphor when we talk about computers. Absolutely. Yeah. So essentially, you know, viruses can't live on their own. You know, viruses need living things to replicate and make copies of themselves. And most people are familiar with lots of viruses that are around. HIV is obviously a well-known one. Hepatitis, the common cold is, you know, most people are familiar with that. And of course, COVID-19 being, you know, the, the, the virus of the day. <laughs> the virus du jour. <laughs> virus du jour. Two years, yes. Viruses are hijackers. Like you said, they, they need us to... Uh, survive and then move on to the next host. And so they take over the machinery of our cells so they can make more viruses. That's how they, they build and build and build. So from what we think was a single case of transmission, the, the origin of all of this in Wuhan, China, that's why we now have a global pandemic. Yep. And again, a good term that people use all the time is infection without really knowing what infection is. So infection as it relates to viruses is when that virus connects to one of your cells, hijacks it and turns it into a virus factory. That's when you can say that you've been infected by a virus like COVID-19. What's really fascinating at the current time is that one of the reasons Omicron is so prevalent is it has perhaps the easiest time getting into our cells of any variant so far. So that's a lot. We've talked about two of the big elements that you need to understand. We've talked about the human body and cells and how it's all made up. And we've talked about viruses. Now we're going to move along and we're going to talk after the break about some of the other stuff that you're going to need to understand how mRNA vaccines work. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right. So I think there's still some more ground to cover here. We've talked a little bit about cells and we talked about viruses. Now let's start to get more into the meat of what is COVID-19. So Mark, we hear this term coronavirus. Again, another term that people are throwing around. Like what is a coronavirus? Yeah. So what's fascinating is, again, coronavirus is obviously 
roared into the public awareness in the last two years, but coronaviruses were already a family and actually a family that most people were familiar with, whether they knew it or not. The common cold is actually an umbrella term for four other coronaviruses. Now, none of them have a name that rolls off the tongue like COVID-19. We have 229E, um, NL63, OC43, and HKU1. So again, they just don't have sort of the meme quality of COVID-19. But the virus that we now call COVID-19 is uh, an acronym. Actually, it stands for Corona with CO capitalized, virus, B-I, disease, D, discovered in 2019. Uh, and another commonly used term, interchangeable essentially, is SARS-CoV-2 or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. Wow. And, you know, it's very funny. I've heard some people online say, well, what happened to, you know, where's uh, coronavirus one? Where's coronavirus two? Where's, where's COVID, you know, COVID three? And, you know, sometimes yeah. they're they're saying that because they basically don't even know how it got the name. But there actually was a coronavirus one or a severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus one. It's not the first time we're seeing something like COVID. Uh, for people who may remember back about 20 years ago, there was a SARS outbreak that happened primarily in Asia, lasted for two years, so almost about the time we've been in the pandemic here. And uh, that pandemic actually killed about a thousand people. So, you know, we've seen these coronaviruses before and actually very similar family of uh, coronaviruses um, that have caused a significant disease. The ironic thing is we learned a lot about managing a pandemic back in 2002 yes. to 2004, but we seem to have forgotten all of it, you know? Yeah, you know, SARS was like the warm up, right? And the sequel is almost always worse than the original. And that's what's <laughs> happening here. And actually, yeah, in terms of encouraging our listeners to be, you know, really critical consumers of information, I cannot tell you how many times in the last two years I've seen people cite articles or, or data or even Dr. Fauci's work on the original SARS, sometimes as some sort of conspiratorial evidence <laughs> that he's been working in a lab on this you know, since 2004. It is a different virus. But you're right, there are certain lessons to be learned from that pandemic and certain features of the coronavirus itself that persist. And uh, one of the things we want to sort of pull back behind the scenes here on the show is how we name things in medicine and really help you understand what's actually going on behind the scenes. So in medicine, we love to use descriptive terms. So the virus is called a coronavirus. A corona is another word for crown. So many people have seen images online of what the coronavirus looks like. It has all these spikes. So for a scientist looking at that virus 100 years ago, it looked like a, a, an object that was wearing a crown. And uh, the crown is actually made of spikes. And a lot of people have probably heard about the spike protein. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But essentially, the spikes are very important in terms of the virus connecting with your cells, infecting those cells, and they're a very important target for vaccines. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. But if we're going to talk about vaccines, we're going to have to step back and really go into Mark's wheelhouse here. We're going to have to talk about the immune system because, you know, that's you can't talk about vaccines without understanding how the immune system works. Our bodies are incredible at being able to tell the difference between our own cells, and as you mentioned, there are trillions of them. And what I'll just say for this show, I'll call them foreigners, and I don't mean that to sound xenophobic, I mean uh, cells that are not us. The distinction is crucial because if you get it wrong, you either invite too many infections into your body and you die of those infections, or in the other direction, you turn on yourself and that's autoimmunity. And mm -hmm. you know, autoimmune disease is absolutely horrendous because you're, you're basically constantly at odds with yourself. Neither condition is desirable. So again, there's this happy medium where we are both defended against invaders 
while also protecting our cells. So the cells that are involved here are, are B cells that make antibodies, and then T cells that are constantly prowling around looking for, again, these, these invaders, these foreigners. And quite famously, when the HIV virus results in AIDS, that acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, those patients tend to have very, very low T cells. Ergo, they are very vulnerable to lots of infections, what we call opportunistic infections. And again, we've known that for decades. And talk about what we learned from SARS. We've actually learned so much about viruses and how they spread and how they compromise people's immune systems from HIV and AIDS. So essentially what we have is this defense system, right? This defense system that's always looking, that's always probing. And when it sees something that it needs to attack, we'll go attack that thing. But Mark, how would I know what to attack? I, I don't know what to attack. Is there a way I can do that better? So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So when we are in the womb, some of the antibodies from our mother actually pass to our circulation via the placenta and actually protect us for probably like the first six months of our, our lives. But after that, it's almost like we're on our own in the sense that our immune systems have to learn from what we're around. Fascinatingly, I had an, an immunology professor in medical school who told us as first-year medical students, at the time we were horrified that he allowed his children to go in the garden when they were young <laughs> and eat and touch whatever they wanted. You know, at that point, I was so early in my medical education, I thought, oh, this is just terrible parenting. But he was thinking about it from an immune perspective, and he was relatively confident that by doing that, he was actually training the immune system in his children to start recognizing you know, what's normal and what's not. So uh, training can come in basically two forms. You can either be directly exposed to something, and in this scenario, it can be a prior infection. And that's when we start talking about native immunity, we'll get into that. Or it can be acquired from a vaccine. All right. So I have this immune system. It's looking out for infections. I could have either been exposed in the past to something that revved up my immune system or I can get a vaccine. So what's a vaccine? Am I taking something and injecting it into me that sort of revs up my immune system? How does that work? A vaccine is ex exposing you to some form of material that at least resembles a part of the virus in question, and then allows your immune system to prepare for that. What's absolutely fascinating about the history of vaccines, they are not new. We've actually known about vaccines since the very end of the 1700s. And this is such a crazy story, and I love to tell it, so if you'll bear with me. So there was a scientist in Britain named Edward Jenner, and he made an observation, and he may have actually heard this from, from some other doctors, but he noticed that you know, smallpox at the time was ravaging uh, Europe in particular, like a tenth of the population was dying from smallpox. Crazy. But he noticed, yeah, right? I mean, just think about if the mortality rate from uh, COVID was that high, it would potentially be even more alarmed. But what was fascinating is Jenner noticed that there were certain groups that seemed invulnerable to smallpox. And among them were milkmaids. So he did some really fascinating science, some of which we wouldn't consider ethical by today's <laughs> standards, which I'll get to. But, but, but he actually scraped but this is a little gross, bear with me. He scraped the pus from uh, boils on a milkmaid's arm and he made this solution, which he then injected into the eight-year-old son of his gardener. Now that's oh. the part where this becomes grossly <laughs> unethical. Uh, talk about violating the trust of your employees. Regardless, he did this to many other people too. And by 1798, he convinced himself that this was a means of inoculating people against Smallpox. And actually, what's really fascinating, if you fast forward nearly two centuries, when we eradicated smallpox, there are some people that think Edward Jenner, as a person, has saved more lives in human history than anybody else with this discovery. Now, of course, we'll never maybe know that for sure. But the, the reason this all worked, JL, and back to your question, what he was sort of inferring 
is that on the cow's udder was a virus called cowpox, which looked just enough like smallpox that by transferring the material, and again, in a very sort of gross <laughs> sort of chain there, from the pus from the milkmaid into the vaccine solution, you're able to train the body so that when you were exposed to smallpox, you were already defended. Got it. And uh, I think the word there would be crude, would be uh, in medicine, or, or <laughs> yes, the term of yes. art would be crude. But I, lo- I love the history. I mean, this is so much of what I loved in medicine. And, you know, sometimes it was so easy to focus on the science, but the history was so instructive, right, in terms of how we discovered things and how often they're like accidents, right? It's just somebody making an observation that these milkmaids are not getting infected. Like, what's different about those milkmaids? So I think that's a fascinating story. And uh, as most people know, you know, what, what happened with smallpox? has happened for measles, mumps, rubella, polio, diseases that even 100 years ago killed many, many people. And, and uh, you know, uh, my family, we like to vacation in New England. And sometimes you'll go and you'll see these cemeteries and you'll see how many of the cemeteries, you know, the child is born in 1741 and dies in 1744. And, you know, these days you don't really see that so much because these uh, vaccines have made such a difference in uh, human survival. Think about Jenner explaining even to his colleagues what he had done. I mean, to us now, it's almost comical. Of course, the, the result was the, the most serious uh, improvement in, in global healthcare. But again, there, I think there are some modern parallels where some of the things that we say are so easily misconstrued or uh, lampooned. But th- though the message is, is that you know, science has worked before and we believe that it can work again. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So we covered vaccines, we covered the immune system. Now let's really start to get into the work of understanding mRNA and mRNA vaccine. So remember what we said before. We said that your body's got this super long instruction set that's included in the nucleus of every cell. Now, if you need to make things out of that instruction set, sometimes you can't have the whole instruction set at one time. So what your instruction, your your body needs to do is take the super long DNA uh, instruction booklet and chop it up and make it smaller so that you can then take those smaller sets of instructions. Maybe it's a couple sentences, a couple paragraphs, a couple pages, and then build proteins and other things out of that that are going to help you build things, right? So why don't we talk a little bit about that process, Mark? I think what people sometimes forget, and you're right, it's, it's right there, but it's easily overlooked, is the M in mRNA stands for messenger. And so, like you mentioned, Jail, it's, it's remarkable how much we've condensed our genetic information. So it's all stored in the nucleus, but you've got all this other machinery, all this other apparatus and instruments within each cell uh, that helps you actually make use of uh, that code. And so it's the mRNA that does that. So the messenger RNA is what ventures out into the rest of the cell. Uh, and allows things like proteins uh, to be made. So mRNA is not new at all. It's in all of us. It's been in all of us or we wouldn't be alive. And so this is not something novel to be afraid of. Uh, What is new, as we'll discuss, is actually really understanding how to use mRNA in vaccine form. 
Exactly. So mRNA, something that you have in you, you're using it all the time. It's a, it is part of being a human being. And in terms of the mRNA vaccine, right, the mRNA that the vaccine is built on, this is amazing technology. I mean, as guys, you know, who are, have an academic medicine background, we know how many Nobel prizes are going to come out of this. You know, people should not only win the Nobel prize, they should win like a MacArthur prize. They should win a Pulitzer prize. I mean, like this is just such amazing technology, literally based on decades of research and development, billions of dollars. The smartest people in the world have developed this technology. And what we were able to do during the pandemic and because of the pandemic is accelerate the launch of two vaccines, one from Moderna and then the other one from a company called BioNTech, which is working with Pfizer. So I have a Moderna story real quick. And it just speaks to the fact that they they were around. And like you said, filled with very smart people long before this pandemic. So when I was in college, and you know this, when we're pre-meds, we have to do certain things in the lab to sort of prove a basic scientific competency before we go into med school. So I was paired with this scientist who has turned out to be an absolutely brilliant mRNA scientist. So she wow. got me through that course. It's called protein purification. We had the highest yield of anybody in the class. And that was all her, not me. And then she went to work later on for this company called Moderna. Mm. And again, if people pay attention, mRNA is right there in the word Moderna, right at the beginning and right at the end. And I explained that to one of my friends once. He looked at me like I just solved the Da Vinci Code. I'm like, it's right there, man. Mind blown. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and again, it's proof. These people knew what they were doing from the outset. They have been interested in mRNA technology for some time. And even the CEO of Moderna explained it wasn't quite plug and play, but it was close. As soon as they knew what to encode and put in the vaccine, meaning the, the spike protein of, of COVID-19, they already had sort of the encapsulation, the delivery mechanism ready. And that's why, I mean, it's truly mind-blowing to think how quickly we went from realizing this was a novel threat to having a vaccine. And again, you can turn every argument on its head. People are afraid of the novelty. They're afraid of the speed. It feels like untested tech, but this is tech that was a long time coming and happened to be available, I think, at just the right time. The key to understanding the mRNA vaccine is, again, going back to what we were saying about vaccines. Vaccines traditionally relied on a broken up version of the real virus or some weakened version of it. The brilliance of the mRNA is that scientists realized that, hey, this spike protein that we talked about, the coronavirus and the spikes, has a very specific structure that you don't find anywhere else in the body. So we're not going to be attacking the body by having an immune response that targets the spike. What a lot of people also don't understand is that as early as January 2020, we already knew what the structure was of the coronavirus. It's actually published on the web. You can go find it. So what they did is they figured out, okay, what's unique to this virus, the spike protein? Let's look on the web. Let's figure out what the code is, the instruction manual is for that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to use the mRNA that would define that spike protein. And then we're going to show your body just the spike protein and start training your immune system to attack the yes. spike protein, which is so mind-blowingly brilliant. I can't even get over it. It's it's so elegant. And, and again, like I said at the top, you know, the whole point of the immune system is this very like razor thin line that we're walking between. You don't want to over attack self, which is why it was so important to design uh, this attack mechanism and defense mechanism against something that wasn't us. 
but you also don't want to be too vulnerable to infection. So one analogy uh, that I really like is that the mRNA vaccine trains your body to respond to the protein. It's like a wanted poster. If you see this, kill on sight. And again, we're not here to diminish the pandemic, far from it. I mean, let's be honest, you know, thousands and thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of hundreds. people have died. Mm-hmm. And, and at this at this point on recording, millions have, have been infected. But again, you have to think about of the of the caseload, which we may actually not even be calculating in total with testing these days, a thankful minority of people were hospitalized and a minority of people died. And you know, ideally nobody would have died. But I honestly believe, JL, and I know people cite any death as a reason that the vaccines, quote unquote, didn't work. That's a, a really negative view of what I actually think was an incredible intervention that probably has saved at this point many, many more lives than we realize. People like to say the vaccine didn't work. I always like to ask them, well, what do you mean by that? Well, they say, well, you can still get infected. That is correct. The virus, you can get a reinfection. The virus can uh, attack your cells. But the difference is your cells, your body has been through the training program. It's now a 10th degree black belt. And when it sees the virus, it might get reinfected, but it is much more effective in terms of responding to the infection. And as a result, you get much less sick. A lot of people who do get uh, reinfected don't even realize they've been reinfected. But again, their immune systems have been trained in such a way that it's not a problem. Yeah, and another analogy I like there is the seatbelt, right? So you wear a seatbelt because you're less likely to be injured or killed in a car accident. It doesn't make you entirely safe, but it, it makes you safer. And I think it's that relative risk reduction that is so crucial. Absolutely. And look, a, a big thing that I've always told people is, all right, let's think about risk. Most people just think about the vaccine without thinking about the associated risk. They're they're, they're like, do I want a vaccine? Yes or no. The question is, is it better to be vaccinated where we know 4 billion people have gotten this vaccine and most of them have done very well? Or do we stay unvaccinated and deal with the reality that like literally one in a hundred people who get this uh, virus are dying? And if you're looking at an older age cohort, like people who are 80 and above, it's like 20%. It's a ridiculously high number. So I think, you know, again, thinking about it the way we think about it, it definitely makes sense. And I know that when the vaccine was available, I ran to get it. And ironically, I got it at the Bronx High School of Science. That's where I got vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a lovely detail. The last thing I'll say, and, and I realized that, you know, if we, if, frankly, if we can convince one person listening to this to get vaccinated who's been on the fence, I think that's a win. But one point that has just emerged is the more people that lack immunity, the more we're actually giving the virus an advantage to survive and mutate. Uh, It's funny because, again, when these variants emerge, it does change our game plan somewhat. And a lot of the naysayers about even basic public health strategies like masking say, well, we're dealing, uh, you know, we're dealing with with, uh, a new variant and clearly the old strategy wasn't working. By allowing the virus to persist like this, we're just giving it more and more chances. I have to tell you as an oncologist, the thing I hate the most is cells that mutate because cells that mutate become resistant to how I've been treating my patients and we have to adapt. And I actually see the same thing happening on a global scale with this virus. The longer it goes on, the longer we don't take it seriously enough. 
And again, there's the efficacy part, right? A 99% reduction in deaths, 97% reduction in hospitalizations. Like you don't see that anywhere else in medicine. Like there are no other medicines I can give you that do that. And then I think the safety is amazing because you're focusing on something that is totally unique to the virus. You're protecting your own cells. And that's why most people have done really well. So again, I think it's amazing technology. And a thing that I think another people don't talk about is the amazing potential for this technology. So, you know- I promise. Uh, again, I used the word serendipity before. It's just ser- sort of serendipitous that we use the technology first for c- the coronavirus. But just in other applications, there are other viruses, HIV, there's no vaccine for that. Influenza, our vaccines are not so good. There are other infectious diseases like malaria. But the thing that I'm most interested in, Mark, is your wheelhouse, cancer. Like, yes. tell me about yes. the, the applications for mRNA and cancer. Oh, I mean, it's huge. Like I said earlier, I mean, the, the, the cancer takes advantage of the fact that to our immune systems, it looks like self because it comes from us. So I, to be honest with you, my platonic ideal, I, I never give anybody chemo anymore. Chemo is, I will be frank, a very crude, very indiscriminate way of treating someone that basically gives them chemicals, the chemo part, and says, kill the cells that are dividing the fastest. I know history is going to look back on us and say, boy, what were they thinking? Why didn't they identify the part of the cancer's genetic code that was unique and exploit that? And Primitive, primitive. You know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm like a caveman as far as oncology is <laughs> concerned. So, and I know, I, I know that, I know that right now. I wish I could do better for my patients in the present, but you're right. I, I don't know yet exactly how it's gonna play out. And there have been some dead ends, of course, in science, but I am very optimistic, as are you, that the same technology could be applied to help a host of diseases, both infectious and non-infectious. All right. So with that, I think we've compressed 10 years of of medical school (laughs) and residency. We've gone through basic science, translational, clinical, and we really hope that people listening have heard something new today. And I think that because we've had to present it via audio, hopefully it's been easier to understand. And certainly if there are parts that you didn't understand, please feel free to rewind. We, We hope we've been able to build a story that makes sense. We hope that you learned something. And if not, we hope you just had fun uh, hanging out with us today. And before we go, we'd like to leave you with our typical end of the show segments. And uh, today I'm going to start with a question from my sister. So my sister is not a doctor uh, and she calls me all the time looking for medical advice. And one of the questions that she asked was, can I mix and match mRNA vaccines, which is actually a actually a very good question. And as we mentioned before, there are two types. There's the Moderna and the Pfizer type. So the recommendation from the CDC is that the first two doses of the vaccine that you have should come from the same manufacturer. So if the first one was Moderna, second one is Moderna, first one is Pfizer, second one should be Pfizer. And it sort of makes sense, right? These are vaccines that are designed to boost your immune response, and you sort of want to make sure that you're using the same technology. But for the third booster, and the truth is we may end up having multiple boosters in the future, you can actually mix and match. So whatever is available to you, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, you can get that. And the CDC embraces a mix and match strategy. I think backing that up with evidence, there was just an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, sort of our premier publication this week, showing exactly that, is that when you when you mix, you get a slightly higher proportion of these neutralizing antibodies than if you match. And so, you know, honestly, I, I think at this point, 
what people can get as a booster is is almost certainly better than nothing. But it is fascinating that we might be learning now about the the, the mixing strategy rather than the matching strategy. So JL, my segment is mean tweets, and this is a mean tweet I actually wrote myself, <laughs> and it imagines what if Twitter had existed in 1798. <clears throat> Edward Jenner, smallpox have killed 10% of Britons, but behold, I have found a solution on a cow's udder. The troll says, quack, well, actually in the pus on a milkmaid's arm, perv. Jenner deletes account, saves the world's historical number of lives. That's so funny. And interesting to see you with your Scottish accent as your native accent, and then sort of pulling in this RP accent, right? You know, the, the, yeah, the received pronunciation. Yeah, I'm not sure my neighbors in the South. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they would uh, say that's the Queen's English, but that was my best, my best shot and scene. All right. Well, I like that. That was great. All right. So in closing, we just want to say thanks for listening. You know, we love having people uh, listen to the show, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I am at Jean-Luc Neptune. I'm also uh, on LinkedIn as well. Mark, yourself? Yeah, I really only do Twitter. I'm at Mark Lewis MD. All right. Sounds good. And if you have a medical question or would like clarification about something medical, please ask us. Uh, you can also call us on the Offscript Health phone line and leave us a message. We just might use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO-66, A-U-D-I-O, and that's 855-283-4666. And just remember, while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show does not provide professional medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. So take care, everybody, and please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.